Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for March 8, 2021. Here's the rundown for today. Are your inpatient hospital beds being used by surgeons wanting to place their outpatients in them? Julie Collins reports our lead story, Outpatients Assigned to Inpatient Beds. Will Congress approve the $1.9 billion coronavirus relief bill this week? Matthew Albright has the Monitor Monday legislative update. We'll also hear from healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Ellen Fink-Samnick, healthcare attorney David Glazer, and Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Now here is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the program host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, slightly more than 17% of the U.S. population has received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. 9% are fully vaccinated. That, according to Bloomberg News Global Vaccine Tracker. In other news, the death toll from the deadly coronavirus appears to be stalling. Blame that on new virus variants. Meanwhile, the governors of Texas and Mississippi are reopening their states. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hurst, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Well, good morning, all. Today is another day of multiple updates. First, I talked a few weeks ago about the online CMS pricer. Several people contacted me stating they were getting an error trying to load the page, and I tried on my spare laptop and got the same error. So I talked to CMS, and they recommended adding an HTTPS colon slash slash before webpricer.cms.gov. I tried it and that fixed it. So now you have no excuse not to try it out. Second, the rumor mill is churning again. And it's now been rumored that Levanta was finally awarded the contract for the short stay audits and may begin as soon as the end of this month. And remember, they're allowed to audit all of your one day inpatient surgery admissions, even those taken off the inpatient only list but they cannot take back your money for those. Now, many of you know that CMS has had their prior authorization program in place since July. And that includes a provision that if a hospital gets at least 90% of requests affirmed, they get an exemption from having to continue to get procedures authorized in advance. You may also know that the program is expanding in July to include cervical spine fusion and implantation of a spinal neurostimulator. Well, CMS informed me that if a hospital is is exempted based on their performance from September 2020 to January 2021, they do not have to submit prior authorizations for any procedures from May this year until March of next year. That includes the two new procedures. Now, this really doesn't make sense. The previous procedures were cosmetic-like and relatively low-cost, but these spine procedures are certainly not cosmetic and cost ten to $20,000. But those who can get an exemption, just so you know, will still have 10 charts audited starting in October to ensure they're still compliant. So you can't just sit back and let your neurosurgeons run wild. As with every surgery, the medical record must indicate the medical necessity for performing the surgery itself. Don't wait until one of these medical record requests arrives months later when you realize the patient never had a trial of physical therapy or tried medications. Now, I'm sure all of you have seen the little emoji that is a bucket of popcorn. That one is used in social media when there's a discussion that you know is going to get heated and your plan is just to sit back and watch. Well, I used it last week. You see, late last year, 
the Medicare Payment Advisory Committee, the MedPAC, released an analysis suggesting that Medicare Advantage plans are overpaid by Medicare for the care they provide. As you'd expect, MA plans did not like this. And in February, they released a rebuttal through their advocacy organization, AHIP, with a blog entitled Medicare Advantage Costs Far Less Than Fee-for-Service Medicare that challenged the modeling methods used by MedPAC. Well, MedPAC did not take kindly to that criticism, and they responded 10, day late, 10 days later with a blog of their own from the MedPAC staff defending their methods. And I added a little more popcorn to my bucket and will continue to watch. So much fun. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the vice president of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday RAC report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Hello, and happy RAC Monitor Monday. We all know that physician visits decreased by a landslide during 2020. With people refusing to go seek medical services, Medicare spending tumbled by $9.4 billion, or 19%, in just the first half of 2020. Some specialties were hit disproportionately harder than others. Spending levels had recovered to about 12% below pre-pandemic levels by June. A 7% increase in spending may seem like a big jump up, but the fact is that when we're talking about Medicare dollars, even 0.1% can be millions of dollars. Last year was an unexpected, unwanted financial demotion for most healthcare providers. Notably, primary care specialties fared slightly better than average, with internal medicine and family medicine reporting a decrease of 14% and 16% respectively. Based on the AMA analysis, here are the physician specialties that were hit the hardest in that first half of 2020. Physical therapy went down 34%, ophthalmology went down 29%, dermatology 24%, cardiology only went down 19%. The impact of Cumulative reductions in Medicare spending range from negative 48 million for clinical psychologists to negative 766 million for ophthalmology. The numbers are quite staggering when you think about the amount of money lost that first half of 2020. Just in family medicine, the cost or the negative impact is $452 million, and for cardiology, I'm sorry, $506 million. E&M spending, for example, decreased by almost 50% by late March before rebounding, while spending on imaging, procedures, and tests decreased as much as 65% to 70% through mid-April. Decreased Medicare spending has placed many healthcare providers in some financial distress. And to think that last March, MedPAC had recommended a 2% increase in Medicare payments for hospital services, wouldn't that have been nice? But there is interesting news for all of you private pay junkies out there. Kaiser published a report dated March 1st, 2021, suggesting that private insurers' reimbursements 
to be limited to Medicare rates and how that would save America $350 billion in 2021. This is big, although Kaiser, it, you know, this, they may not implement this, but this is a strong report in support of decreasing private pay. The analysis found that total health care spending for privately insured population would be an estimated $352 billion lower in 2021 if employers and other insurers reimbursed health care providers at Medicare rates. This represents a 41% decrease from the $859 billion that is projected to be spent in 2021. So keep your eye out for any sort of changes. Uh, the, the Kaiser report also found that there would be health care spending for privately insured adults ages 55 to 64 would be $115 billion lower in 2021, and this would be a third of the estimated total reduction in spending. If this is implemented, it seems that healthcare providers all over the nation will be getting an undesirable pay cut. Thanks. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the law firm of practice. And coming up at about 13 and a half minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Alan Fink, Sandwich, David Glazer, and our special guest this morning, Julie Collins, who's standing by to report our lead story. It's Monday, it's March 8th, and you're listening to a live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. Acute heart failure poses serious coding and CDI challenges. Fortunately, two webcasts from ICD-10 Monitor and Rack Monitor deliver essential knowledge leading to stronger documentation to support your ICD-10-CM coding for acute heart failure. You'll also learn effective strategies for appealing claim denials. Register now for this two-part series from Rack Monitor and ICD-10 Monitor. Acute Heart Failure, Coding, CDI, and Appeal Strategies. Part 1 of this special series is now available on demand. Part 2 is coming March 17th. Purchase the combo and save 10%. Register now for this unique two-part webcast presentation. Here now with the Modern Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, what could be risky this morning? Chuck, it's not knowing what's happening right under your nose. Now, I often cover regulatory topics, but lately I've been on a process kick. And today that continues. So many years ago, we took our son to see a specialist in his pediatric office. Now, I always assume it's easier to pay a copay at the time of the visit, just like the sign says. So I handed over my credit card. But a few weeks later, I received a bill for the copay. So I called up and I explained that I'd already paid. The person on the other end of the line said, oh, yes, this happens all the time. You see, our doctor doesn't work for that clinic. So that clinic kept the copayment, but it should have come to us. So here's what you need to do. You need to pay us now, then you can call them up and have them return the money. So let's break down each part of what that billing office professional said to me. First, they opened by acknowledging there's a systemic problem, one that will cause me to pay two co-payments unless I'm paying attention carefully to my bills. The this happens all the time was not a good opener. Next, they put the systemic problem onto me. I'm expected to go get the overpayment from my pediatrician, and in the meantime, they're gonna make me pay twice as much as I'm responsible for. This was both a client service and compliance fiasco. 
And while you might think it was the pediatric clinic that was getting the extra money, so specialists don't need to worry about it, if the specialist knows the primary care doctors are pocketing that extra money, there's a potential kickback issue. Now, I was good friends with the compliance officer at this particular clinic, so I called her up and shared the story. As we were talking about it, we realized how, how rarely lawyers and compliance professionals interact with frontline people who are talking directly with patients. We're all quite busy, but there's a lot to be learned from seeing the interactions between the individuals who engage with the business office or with the uh, encounters at the front desk. I'm sure you all hear the ubiquitous, this call may be recorded for quality purposes so often that it's functionally background noise. But does anyone actually listen to those calls as the messages threaten? Actions within the business office have the potential to create or avoid significant compliance issues. In the past, I've talked about the benefit of having the compliance officer buy coffee for people in the organization. I wanna make sure that that doesn't get too focused and overlook the people who are in the business office and frontline staff because they squarely fall within the category of people worth talking to. Obviously, in a hospital with hundreds or even thousands of employees, you can't talk with everyone, but finding a way to observe some of those interactions is important and worthwhile. Many years ago, I shared the story of a receptionist who helped us uncover a giant compliance issue. A patient had complained that she'd been billed for a complete physical, but had never removed any clothing. One might think that the doctor coded based on time, but we pulled the chart and there was a complete physical documented. I would have been prepared to dismiss this as a baseless concern were it not for the observations of the non-clinical staff who had noticed some irregularities in the physician's practice. The bottom line is there's a lot to learn from listening to non-clinical professionals within an organization and paying attention to queries from patients. Mike and the Mechanics have a lyric in Silent Running that describes the message we should all telepathically receive when a patient calls the billing office. Can you hear me? Can you hear me calling you? Chuck, how about it? Can you hear me calling you? Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink-Samnick. Alan also has the Monitor Monday Listener Survey, and good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck, and a very happy March Monday to everyone. I receive frequent questions about when the ICD-10 CM codes will better address the social determinants of health. It's one of the reasons that prompted my emergence on this broadcast. When 2020 focused on the pandemic, the ICD-10 code pendulum did unfortunately not swing in the direction of the social determinants. Data remains compelling. Over 50% of readmissions prompted by the psychosocial factors of housing, food insufficiency, transportation access, isolation, the environment, quality of and access to care, plus other factors. Now, it's been a while since I mentioned the Gravity Project comprised of subject matter experts and stakeholders from across the industry. For those not familiar, the project started in late 2018 by SIREN with funding from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. The goal? 
to convene broad stakeholder groups to identify and harmonize social risk factor data for interoperable electronic health information exchange. Well, this is the project's week to shine. On March 10th, project representatives will present a proposal to recommend ICD-10-CM code changes and updates to the CDC National Center of Health Statistics Coordination and Maintenance Committee. The project incorporates social risks across populations that span the following determinants. Housing instability. Despite vast evidence on the health risks of economically driven housing instability for individuals and families, no specific codes define this broad risk or specific risks of subtypes of housing instability that evolve into homelessness. Transportation insecurity. Representing health risks and management complexities as systems consider transportation barriers to health and behavioral health care. Education status of less than a high school degree. Current ICD-10-CM codes include general concepts of literacy and underachievement, yet no way exists to distinctly represent known risks of the inability to attain high school diplomas or equivalent independent of literacy. Food insecurity. Vast health risks and health costs are associated with food insufficiency. The evidence reflects how both risk areas increased with rate and severity of food insecurity. However, no dedicated code exists for among the most frequently occurring social determinants. Financial strain and material hardship. The literature validates need for a code denoting financial insecurity and material hardship contribute to health risks and management needs one that is separate from food insecurity, housing instability, or transportation insecurity. Veteran status. As surprising as it may seem, there is no ICD-10 CM code for veteran status. The existing code Z91.82, Personal History of Military Deployment, is often incorrectly applied, yet one can be a veteran and never be deployed. Socioeconomic risk consulting. The need is identified for a specific counseling code that represents assessment and patient-centric goal setting that addresses socioeconomic risk. A common action of many case managers and their departments. Inadequate drinking water supply. The project recommends adding Z58 in order to be a base code for inadequate drinking water supply and future neighborhood and environment domains. This effort would also involve a necessary split of code Z59.4. And finally, noncompliance and financial hardship, another popular domain. Based on existing code Z91.120, patients' intentional underdosing of medication regime due to financial hardship, the project recommends correlating codes within the dietary and other medication treatment and regime routes. Further information does live on the Gravity Project's work and can be viewed on their website, which is available in this week's story for RAC Monitor. Our Monitor Monday survey asks, in considering new ICD-10 CM codes or enhancements, your top wish would be, and I've only included a few here, A, inadequate drinking water supply, B, noncompliance and financial hardship, C, veteran status, D, housing insecurity, E, food insecurity. I'll be curious to see what you say. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen. That was consultant and author Alan Fink-Sandrich. And as Alan said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in this broadcast. Up next, Matthew Albright with our legislative update. 
The Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments, backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Chuck, on Saturday, Biden's COVID relief bill passed the Senate on party lines, and the bill will now return to the House for its expected final passage, maybe as early as tomorrow. In its current version, the $1.9 trillion package includes direct payments to Americans. The level of income that is eligible for those payments is capped at an annual income of $80,000 for individuals or $160,000 for couples. The package continues the federal unemployment supplement of $300 a week and expands tax credits for low-income families with children. There is funding for vaccine distribution, COVID testing, state and local governments and businesses, but the bill does not include the controversial $15 minimum wage. The package also temporarily expands the eligibility for subsidies for the Affordable Care Act marketplace so that middle-class families and the unemployed could now get significantly more help in paying for the premiums. Finally, the package includes incentives for the expansion of Medicaid in the 12 remaining states that have not taken advantage of that Affordable Care Act initiative. With this new funding, states that expand Medicaid now could basically do it at no cost to themselves for the first two years. And then the federal share would drop to 90%, as with other existing states that have already taken advantage of the expansion. In other news from the Hill, California's Attorney General Javier Becerra is struggling through his nomination for the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. The Senate Finance Committee split on confirming him along party lines last week, so now his confirmation will be put to a vote before the whole Senate. Because the Democrats have a one-person lead in the Senate, Becerra is expected to ultimately be nominated, but it's been a slow process. During his hearings, Becerra was asked about the hospital transparency rule. As many of you know, under the transparency rule, by January 1st, 2021, hospitals were required to develop both a machine-readable file and a consumer-friendly tool that lists the standard charges for a hospital's items and services. Since that final rule was passed in late 2019, hospitals have asked both the Trump and Biden administrations to repeal or delay some of the rules requirements or its enforcement. Becerra, however, appeared to deflate the possibility of any kind of delay during his hearings when he said, quote, what I can say to you is we will do robust enforcement to make sure price transparency is there for all Americans because for far too long, people have never had an idea what they're going to pay when they walk into a hospital. Close quotes. And with that, Chuck, I'm going to hand it right back to you. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is a chief legislative affairs officer for Zealous. And coming up next is surprise responses to the Monitor Money listener survey. Stand by. Here's important information about the healthcare publication focused on third-party auditors. It's the Auditor Monitor. In the current edition of Auditor Monitor, you'll learn how thousands of healthcare providers were forced to request provider relief funds from the government. And in exchange for receiving the funds, providers must attest to their proper use and comply with reporting guidelines. Money found to have been misused will be recouped. Also in the Auditor Monitor, gain insight into the once unthinkable concept of rationing healthcare. 
a subject glaringly apparent as the nation continues to grapple with the coronavirus pandemic. Not an Auditor Monitor subscriber? Here's your chance to have your own edition. Go to the Rack University Bookstore and order your subscription today and start receiving the Auditor Monitor. Now is the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. And once again, here's Alan fink Sandy. Thank you so much, Chuck. And back to our results for today. Um, they were indeed surprising to your point. In considering new ICD-10 CM codes or enhancements, your top wish would be 4% said inadequate drinking water supply, 14.5% referred to veteran status as the most important. 18% spoke of housing insecurity. Close to 14% spoke to food insecurity. And I will say that those last two have been traditionally the highest areas of attention on the social determinants. But by far, the one that got everyone's attention, close to 50%, in fact, not over as it always goes up as I speak, Noncompliance and financial hardship. We will see what the results of Wednesday's advocacy and hearing by the Gravity Project yield, and I will report on that in the future. Back to you. Reporting our lead story this morning is the manager of utilization and management at Tri Health in Cincinnati. That's Julie Collins. And good morning, Julie. Welcome to Monitor Monday. Let's talk about this problem about hijacking beds. Good morning. When CMS removed total knee arthroplasties from their inpatient-only list in 2018, industry-wide befuddlement ensued. Determining the proper hospital classification or status of elective surgeries became rather challenging. While CMS denied any major impact to this change, by this change due to their opinion that most TKAs have a two-midnight stay, it did indeed create major challenges for hospitals whose TKAs had an expected length of stay less than two midnights. CMS added to the confusion in 2020 by removing total hip arthroplasty. Then, 2021 brought the removal of nearly 300 additional procedures from the inpatient-only list with a goal of complete elimination of this list by 2024. CMS stated the purpose of the elimination is to allow procedures to be performed and billed as outpatient in the hospital outpatient setting while maintaining the ability to perform and bill as inpatient when appropriate. If your hospital does not have a designated area for extended recovery, you're likely seeing an increase of outpatients in your inpatient beds. Just ask the C-suite. They're keenly aware of the rise. In the utilization realm, we know CMS payment changes bleed over to commercial insurers. Within a month of CMS's announcement of the removal of TKAs and THAs from their inpatient-only list, we saw a rapid shift from commercial payer inpatient prior authorizations to outpatient off. This led me to wonder if the commercial payers heard the same message from CMS, that the intent was to allow billing of outpatient, not require it. There are many instances where the removed procedures remain appropriate for inpatient, but we are seeing more and more surgeons take the path of least resistance and request all procedures as outpatient. When you consider the prior off is not for the procedure alone, 
but also determines hospital payment as outpatient or inpatient, it's critical for the classification to be right from the start. The difference between an inpatient and outpatient payment can be thousands of dollars. So you should take some time to review your contracts and see this difference before Medicare eliminates their inpatient-only list entirely. Before prior authorization is even requested, shouldn't we be asking ourselves to consider the prospective use of hospital resources for the procedure and recovery? Things such as, does this patient have diabetes, which increases their risk for adverse outcomes and requires additional monitoring? Well, what about a high ASA score, which has been linked to complications post-op? Is the surgeon's office asking these questions before they request a prior authorization? Are they even aware the prior off they request impacts hospital payment? From what I've been seeing, I think not. Our common goal as healthcare providers should be providing the best possible care for patients in the most appropriate setting. If this means performing a procedure and allowing for recovery in the hospital as inpatient to adequately mitigate risk, then why shouldn't we request inpatient and why shouldn't the commercial payers approve it? I believe a prospective utilization review of elective procedures is necessary to get the classification right from the start. Prospectively reviewing risks related to comorbidities and the anticipated disposition will help with requesting and securing the proper classification. And that's my perspective on the prospective, Chuck. Now back to you. Thanks, Julie, very much. That was the manager of utilization management at TriHealth in Cincinnati, Julie Collins. That's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Money, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today, and a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink, Sam David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hurst, and our special guest, Julie Collins, reporting our lead story. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Remember to wear your face mask, wash your hands, practice social distancing, and be sure to get vaccinated. It's very dangerous out there, but thank you for being with us today. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.